This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is away this week. I'm Bob Garfield. Everybody got hurt. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. Ten autumns ago came two watershed moments in the history of money. In September 08, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers triggered a financial meltdown from which the world has yet to fully recover. The following month, someone using the name Satoshi Nakamoto introduced Bitcoin, the first cryptocurrency. A peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Bitcoin transactions have no middleman. There's no government and no central bank controlling the supply of Bitcoin. Some say 2008 marked the end of the old world financial order and the beginning of the new. Before our eyes, the very architecture of money was evolving, changing the world in the process. But how? What architecture are we talking about exactly? And what the hell is money anyway? Millions of dollars pouring into the hands of the American worker. Money. A dollar and four cents. My first payday. Yeah, yeah, of course, money is many things. It's how we buy our groceries and how we manage the global economy and how we keep score of success. It's how we are compensated for labor and risk. It's a token of exchange for valuation, for obligation, and maybe most of all, trust. But on top of everything else, or more precisely, at the bottom of it all, is the reason this particular set of 10th anniversaries falls within the bailiwick of On the Media. Money, in any form, is the connective tissue of society, a medium for our relationships past, present, and future. It is humanity's never-ending narrative. Money is a story that we all tell ourselves. Neha Narula is the director of the Digital Currency Initiative at MIT's Media Lab. You know, there's nothing inherently valuable about a dollar bill or a coin that you keep in your pocket or even a bar of gold. Those things have value because we know that other people think that they have value. Money is a network where we all collectively have decided that we're going to use it to represent value. A collective belief is not to be dismissed. You've seen Peter Pan. It's how a dying fairy called Tinkerbell is brought back to life. If you believe, wherever you are, clap your hands and she'll hear you. Clap! Clap! Don't let Tink die! Clap! She's getting better. Clap! Clap! Hold that thought. Before too long, you will be hearing about Tinkerbell again. In this hour, we look at the story of money, from its uncertain origins to its digital reinvention in the form of cryptocurrency, which may simultaneously reform global commerce and blow the foundations of modern society to smithereens. But 
We'll begin in a curious place with an artist, a man who made a global reputation and an incredible legal ruckus searching for the meaning of money. My name is Boggs, B-O-G-G-S. J.S.G. Boggs was an artist whose technical genius was drawing uncanny replicas of paper currency and using them to purchase goods and services. You could call it counterfeiting, except nobody ever thought that they were accepting legal tender. They were accepting a signed, hand-drawn Boggs. This is from a 1992 documentary, Money Man, J.S.G. Boggs. I started drawing and spending my money in 1984. I was a poor, starving artist, as they say, when I found myself in Chicago, in a cafe, doodling on a napkin. The waitress came over and said the drawing looked like a $1 bill and asked if she could buy it from me. So when she came back with the check for my coffee, it was for 90 cents, I offered her the drawing as payment. She took it and insisted I take 10 cents in change. So I framed the dime and hung it on the wall. And that's how it all started. He followed this same ritual for almost three decades, and now his work is displayed in Chicago's Art Institute, the British Museum, and the Smithsonian. By the time of his 2017 death, he'd drawn bills totaling more than $1 million based on their denominations as art pieces, which include the original sketch, the receipt, and the cash change. They've gone on to fetch an untold fortune in the open market. His art, he emphasized, was not a drawing per se, but the entire transaction. Here he is explaining it to a coffee house manager. Excuse me, uh, the waiter just brought this to my attention. Uh, I understand that you wanted to pay for your check with this, this bill here? Yes. Yes, I actually I made this um, $100 note myself. And it's very nice. It's not actually uh, real currency, and it's not counterfeit currency. It's actually a work of art. Such radical transparency has a proud history in 20th century art. In his most famous work, Belgian painter René Magritte depicted a curvy briar pipe with the caption in script, This is not a pipe, because it was, of course, merely a picture of a pipe. The treachery of images, Magritte called the painting. Bogg's entire body of work toyed with such treachery by similarly disclosing his authorship of his remarkable facsimiles. Lacking any intrinsic worth, a Boggs had value only if he could persuade someone to believe it's valuable. This is what behavioral economists and others call, yes, the Tinkerbell effect. The value resides entirely in mass belief, just like money. He's one of these people who, you know, like in the cartoon, you walk over the cliff, you keep walking, and he says, uh, will you please look down? Nothing is holding us up. Lawrence Weschler, who followed the artist's exploits for 30 years, is the author of Boggs, A Comedy of Values. Except the most marvelous thing of all, which is this community of belief that we have and the way in which value is negotiated at every moment between human beings in a, in a truly mystifying and marvelous and and delightful and, at times, terrifying fashion. The marveling at money's mysteries hardly began with Boggs. Here's a 1947 school instructional film tracing the path of a single $5 bill. After school, the $5 bill goes to a hardware store where Tom uses it to buy the paint. 
This is one of the most common ways in which we all use money, as a medium of exchange for goods. Tom exchanges a certain amount of money for a gallon of paint. The clerk naturally accepts the money, and he gives Tom a smaller amount of money in change. Exactly like a Boggs transaction, even the ones that never happened due to that hard-hearted portion of the population unwilling to believe in Tinkerbell. Good morning. May I help you? Yes. Can you tell me the price of those bookends in the window? Yes, that pair is eight seventy-five, and most attractive. I'm afraid that's more than I care to spend. The movie spoke less with authority than bemusement over a system so invested in mere tokens or totems, a mystery which, Weschler observes, mankind has been trying to get to the bottom of for at least 2,600 years. The pre-Socratic philosophers on islands in the Ionian Sea, where there are mines, and the mines are turning their stuff into coins. And the question they're asking is, what is the meaning of value? How is it possible that this piece of stone is worth something in relation to this cow over here? And why does that man have all those stones? And what is really of value? And within a few generations, you have Socrates asking that as the main question of philosophy. What does it mean to have a valuable life? Such weighty musings are the sort of thing that landed Boggs' work in the British Museum, which is kind of ironic because before that, his work was scrutinized by Britain's Central Criminal Court for illegal reproduction of British currency. Boggs, in the dock of the Old Bailey, persuaded a jury that, no, no, the British notes rolling off of Her Majesty's printing presses, they were reproductions, His drawings were originals. There, he prevailed. However, he was less fortunate with the United States Secret Service because, as 1947 school kids learned, imitation is the sincerest form of felony. So, today in the United States, any money is counterfeit and so worthless unless issued by the federal government. And anyone who knowingly tries to spend counterfeit money maybe find a large amount and sent to jail. The Secret Service never prosecuted Boggs, but did spend many millions of actual U.S. dollars investigating him, harassing him, and fighting him in civil court, confiscating more than a thousand items of his drawings and other property along the way. Then a U.S. federal judge ruled that the Secret Service was within its rights to take fake money out of circulation. And Boggs, says Renweschler, was broken. A man who had spent much of his early childhood as a carny, helping in cheerful flimflams, and who had devilishly poked at the law in the name of art, took the philosophy of value, shall we say, to the next level. What happened in the case of Boggs is I never was sure whether he was interested in money or interested in transgression, and fascinated by transgression. And after this complete defeat by the government where they wouldn't give him his stuff back, He got interested in another form of money, which was, he noticed the fastest way of turning crap into money was a meth lab. Yes, near the end of his life, he manufactured illicit drugs. Whether that depraved stunt was evolution of his art, naked criminality, or insanity remains unclear. What is clear is that the man who captured the world's imagination by making fake money it actually made real money, a rogue currency perhaps, but a genuine currency nonetheless, 
a medium of exchange with fixed denominations floating in value based on the global marketplace, and yet intrinsically worth no more than the paper it was printed on. It was Wiley Coyote, three steps beyond the cliff's edge, suspended in midair. This I asserted to Boggs Boswell, the author Weschler. If the goal of art at some level is to locate truth, mm-hmm. my take is that Boggs came about as close as any artist I can think of mm-hmm. for getting to the truth of money. Yeah. I would argue that that's exactly true. And that the truth of money is that it is an endless perplex. It is endlessly confounding. Coming up, what is money? Or, more to the point, what isn't it? This is on the media. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Yes, as Ren Weschler says, this money thing is an endless perplex. Or maybe, as Matthew McConaughey maintains in The Wolf of Wall Street, it is merely an illusion. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It's not real. The very first things that we see that we could call money-like really are sets of transactional records that emerge in the ancient Near East in Mesopotamia. Bill Maurer is a cultural anthropologist and sociolegal scholar at the University of California, Irvine. Well, all of a sudden we have this kind of new thing. People, a lot of people living in a place all together needing some kind of system of coordination so that they can all continue to live together in a sort of settled community with a population size that's getting to the point where I can't keep track of who everyone is anymore. And we start to see centralized systems to help people keep track of what they owe to whom. Wait, what? He's describing ledgers, a system of recording obligations and their payment. That's not what they taught us in school. We all learned that money was simply an advancement on the earlier barter system. Chicken for grain, for axe blades, and so on. Everybody knows that. In primitive days, living was simple and each family produced whatever it needed. The first kind of business was barter. A good stonecutter, for instance, might make a few extra tools and simply trade them for furs and other things he wanted. It was easy. There was no need for money. More from that delicious 1947 educational film we heard earlier. Life today is too complex. People are too dependent upon each other. Jobs are too highly specialized for us to do business by barter. That's why we depend on money as a quick and easy medium of exchange. Only problem is, says Maurer, no matter what we learned in school, 
the anthropological record offers no evidence of simple barter anywhere in history. Yeah, so the barter story is a, an origin story for money that you know has a, a very long history. Aristotle actually used that story to try to understand himself where money came from and what the kind of good and bad functions of money could be. And in the 19th century, as economics was becoming professionalized, economists picked up this barter origin story for money and kind of set it forth into the world. Um, the thing is that we just don't see that situation ever happening. If you go to a New Guinea village in the highlands and see people exchanging shells for pigs, you might think, aha, there it is. This is, for instance, a yetak, a plated string decorated with cowries and other precious objects, which was used by the Dani people in New Guinea to determine and to pay for the exact price of a pig. That's barter. But, but what you're really seeing is part of a much more complex series of relationships that people are engaged in that generally have to do with some pretty serious social concerns, concerns over birth, over marriage, over death, over the continuation of a lineage or a tribe, where the pig in this case isn't just any old pig being exchanged. And I always think of, you know, Charlotte's Web in this context. Some terrific, radiant, humble pig some pig. It's some pig. It's a special pig that indicates a relationship between families. It's not just a commodity that's value can be set by the price mechanism the way that the barter story assumes. So how did this barter mythology become so nearly universal? Why is this news to me? Very often, origin stories are serving contemporary interests. So if we want to believe that the market as it exists today and that money as it exists today is natural, normal, inevitable, then something like the barter origin story helps us justify its continued existence, helps us say, well, look, you know, this is a rational response to the problem of the double coincidence of wants, which is what economists call that problem when, you know, I've got fish and you've got apples and you don't want my fish and I don't want your apples. So it's great to justify current conditions, but when you start kind of cracking it open and start sort of peeling back the layers and realizing that that's not really how it happened and that how it happened was, you know, actually a lot more interesting and a lot more complicated and involved things like record keeping, accounting, systems of measure, uh, states and early state control and shaping of markets and so forth. Well, then you're in a whole other realm. The real story is told in Mesopotamian tablets and other artifacts for record-keeping dating from the rise of agriculture and settled communities in the ancient Near East, phenomena that demanded the invention of bookkeeping. We're dealing now with people who aren't just hunting and gathering, but are growing grain and are taking care of animals like sheep and goats. These commodities have seasonal cycles, right? I plant the grain and it takes a while to turn into stuff that I can reap and turn into, you know, dough and bread. And sheep and goats only calve during certain parts of the year. You know, if I'm planting grain and I'm going to give some to you after a period of time and you're raising goats and you're going to give some to me after a period of time, we both have the built-in seasonality of those plants and animals to deal with. And what we start to see in those situations is the emergence of central authorities Central clearinghouses, which had some properties of temples, hubs of spiritual authority, and some of banks. So this is going to kind of oversimplify it, but we basically write little contracts to each other that say things like, 
okay, look, you're giving me this goat today. Thank you. After a certain period of time, after six months, I will repay that debt that I now owe you with certain number of bushels of grain. Okay, that isn't from the Fertile Crescent three millennia ago. It's from a different temple, the Chicago Board of Trade Soybean Trading Floor from 2006. But you get the idea. And in both cases, every promise was recorded. We have scribes in these temples keep track of these contracts. And that's where we start to see something like money. It's kind of a time-deferred contract for the settlement of a debt recorded on that clay. I like to joke that, you know, in the beginning was not the coin, in the beginning was the receipt. And that's essentially what you've got in those clay tablets. And other slightly less portable media. Travel, as the New York Times Retro Report did, to the tiny Micronesian island of Yap, home to money the size of semi-truck wheels made of stone. There are thousands of these stones all over the place here. They're actually an ancient form of currency. Whose value resides partly in scarcity. The stones had to be imported in canoes from neighboring islands, partly in the effort invested to quarry and mill them, but mainly in the communal memory of who owned them and the consensus of their worth. MIT's Neha Narula from her TED Talk. Now, the Yap don't actually move these rhinestones around or exchange them. Rhinestones can get to be pretty massive. The largest is about four tons and 12 feet across. You can't feed the meter with them or melt them down or wire them abroad. You can only remember with them. So the Yap just kind of keep track of who owns what part of what stone. Kindly hold that thought, too. Now, in time, the recording of obligations did give way to the shorthand of coin and currency and further to banking transactions and credit instruments and so on to the cusp, as we shall soon discuss, of digital currency. Thus did money emerge, not from the barter system, but from the need to keep track of an unwieldy number of transactions. Suddenly, it seems so obvious. Money is a mnemonic device, a proxy for history, a memory stick. Or not. Remember, this is an endless perplex we're talking about, and if money is merely a record of obligations, why does its value fluctuate, sometimes even gyrate, based on factors that have zero to do with who owes what to whom? We all understand that inflation steadily erodes the face value of a dollar. A car that cost $7,000 in 1970 costs $30,000 today and all that. But what else is at play in determining the value of a dollar? Firstly, there are two kinds of money base money, meaning all the world's currencies in circulation and the cash reserves in the global banking system, and credit money, which is all the money promised to be paid eventually. Now, they would seem to be opposites, one an asset, one a liability, but in the world of banking, paradoxically, they are all assets and traded accordingly. Money is central bank money, money is base money. 
Mark Blythe is the William R. Rhodes Professor of International Economics at Brown University. Money is credit and credit cards, even money in the form of derivatives, for example, in these complex financial instruments, which have a kind of money-like character. You may think of money as a means of buying something you want, like a BLT or a freight car of pork bellies six months from now. But money is also a commodity in itself, which creates this weird Escher print effect of an image folded seamlessly into itself. People all over the world buying money with money and in so doing, influencing the value of money. Kind of makes your head swim, and it's complicated still more by the fact that Chinese money differs from European money, which differs from American money, because they have unique domestic conditions and economies, and of course, currencies reflecting them. Imagine different countries have different currencies, which is obviously true. And imagine that you live in the United States. Well, you have the one currency that everybody else wants to have. Why? Because it's 60% of everybody's foreign exchange reserves and also denominates 70% of everything out there in the world. So when you buy oil, it's in dollars. When you buy wheat, it's in dollars. Now, if you're a country that doesn't get to print dollars, you don't have that advantage. So everybody's money is not the same. No, and the variables affecting the value of your dollar extend to everything under the sun, from the weather... Wheat prices have been swinging wildly because of a drought in Russia. ...to unilateral currency fluctuations... China unexpectedly devalued its currency by 2%, leading to a drop in the U.S. stock market... ...to political events. Investors splurge on the stock market after the election of Donald Trump. And speaking of Donald Trump, there was a phenomenon he tweeted about the other day misleadingly, that also enters into the mix, the time value of money. Thanks to presumed compounding interest, the value of any dollar today is deemed to reflect the value it will have in the future. But because the dollar in hand has that potential right now, to economists and financiers... One dollar now will be worth more than a dollar in a year from now. In fact, much of banking and Wall Street and commodities markets hinge on later the perceived value of something in the future. You could argue that money doesn't even exist in the moment. It's either a ledger of the past or a projection of the future. Mark Blythe calls it an insurance policy. Money is a hedge against the uncertainty of the future. So given that that's your insurance policy, your hedge, you really want the policy to pay out tomorrow what you think it's worth today, which is why we worry about inflation and all the rest of it. Except, wait, aren't insurance policies supposed to offer peace of mind? Here's the funny thing about money as a commodity in that insurance form, if you want to think about it. So if money's your insurance, you want to have more insurance. So we spend our lives getting more and more and more insurance. And the mark of someone who's successful is that they have this big pile of cash. So they have more insurance than anyone. So what do they then do? Well, the more money you have, the more you worry about it the more sensitive you become to changes in your money holdings. You become obsessed with money. A prescription for madness. Because not only is our money at the mercy of countless unseen forces and actors and events, if you venture to the seller of the insurance company and open the vault, it's like Geraldo Rivera seeking the hidden treasure of Al Capone. All I'd found was an old stop sign and a couple of empty gin bottles. Thus, Blythe says the most enduring myth about money. That somehow it's backed with something. There's no there there. When you contemplate the value of a dollar, don't waste your time looking for underlying value, because there is none. 
On this subject, we turn once again to noted economist Matthew McConaughey, this time portraying a prospector in the 2016 movie titled Gold. We gotta go, mine! Well, no wonder he was excited. Gold is secreted underground, universally treasured, gleaming and portable, and easily stored, and therefore perfect for wedding rings and palaces and government reserves to guarantee the value of their currency. But hold on. Gold, as natural resources go, is actually quite plentiful. If scarcity is so important, why isn't Fort Knox filled with, I don't know, terbium or some other rare earth mineral? Well, there's a lot of things that are scarce that don't have that kind of same aura of value around them. Anthropologist Bill Maurer. In the case of something like gold or silver, you know, we can point quite clearly to the historical evidence, both in ancient times and modern times, that its value was set by states who were determining what a standard would be that all debts and credits payable to the state would be measured in terms of, right? It's sort of a political decision, not any kind of natural outcome of the rarity or intrinsic preciousness of anything that gives something intrinsic value. A political decision that proved catastrophic during the Great Depression, when the United States was unable to expand the money supply, print money, as they say, to keep the economy functioning following the 1929 Wall Street crash. Herbert Hoover, eyeing the ruinous hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany, and elsewhere from vast deficit spending, notoriously refused to budge from the gold standard. We find some who are maintaining that the world has outgrown the use of gold as a basis of currency and of exchange. One of his critics was Hoover's 1932 opponent, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who offered a new deal, which let government embrace Keynesian economics and spend its way out of unemployment and financial gridlock. I propose to show that this leadership misunderstood the forces that were involved in the economic life of the country. The U.S. dollar wasn't officially untethered from gold until the Nixon administration, but FDR's move was the effective end of the gold standard and the beginning of so-called fiat currency, a money supply backed by nothing more than the full faith and credit of the United States. And faith is not a word lightly invoked. The story of money, Maurer says, intertwines the twin themes of religion and sovereignty. In the ancient world and, you know, up until the Middle Ages in Europe, and you start to see things that are state-like that also are religion-like. Central authorities folks go to with their problems and when there are debts that need to be settled or when there's some sort of redress that needs to be made. Well, someone has to make the rules and someone has to enforce them, which, of course, is the very essence of ecclesiastical and political authority. Money, says Maurer, is an expression of that authority, of sovereignty itself. Some argue that America is a superpower not because of its military might or moral authority, but because more than 80% of all the world's financial transactions are settled in U.S. dollars. One wonders, then, if for some reason the dollar were to lose its global primacy, where would that leave the U.S. government? We may soon find out. Coming up, if indeed money is a story we tell ourselves, the plot is thickening. This is On the Media. 
This is On to Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Here's one thing about that epic story called money. It has a cast of millions, banks, credit card companies, marketers, taxing authorities, police, even private eyes. We uncover the data you need, the truth, without wasting time and money guessing what people are up to. Contact us today. Know the truth tomorrow. As we've just seen, the economy is the ultimate exercise in collaboration. Collaborators you don't necessarily choose, such as Mother Nature, Enron traders, and governments who can impoverish you with the stroke of a pen. The Zimbabwe dollar is virtually worthless because inflation has skyrocketed. The hyperinflation in Venezuela this year is likely to run at a staggering 13,000%. The peso has devaluated 100% in the past year, and that has had huge consequences in the poor neighborhoods of Buenos Aires. And then there are the rest of us, all of us, at constant peril of being drawn reluctantly into the story. We are promised privacy in many aspects of our lives, but in our financial transactions, as in an anxiety dream, we can find ourselves standing naked before the crowd. The U.S. state of Massachusetts is suing Equifax. A recent cyber attack at the credit reporting agency exposed the personal information of 143 million people, that's about If only there were a currency that was private, secure, stable, convenient, and not subject to the political or predatory manipulation of outsiders. A Bitcoin, the virtual currency that doesn't abide by rules of a bank or government. It's digital, it's filled with controversy, even if some businesses are using it and beginning to do so. Aggressively. Bitcoin is the first of now a multitude of so-called cryptocurrencies, built not on gold reserves or limestone edifices, but on software code. The infrastructure is called the blockchain, a digital version of an old-fashioned ledger book. Just as those listed entry upon entry sequentially numbered in indelible ink, the blockchain is an unerasable ledger of every private transaction. But instead of being held by some governing central authority, it is distributed peer-to-peer on countless computers across the world. So people know Bitcoin as a digital currency, but it's really more like a digital yappy stone representing the community's collective memory. And in another throwback, the currency, in Bitcoin's case, consists of a finite number of virtual tokens digitally mined by e-prospectors. Thousands of computers churning in such places as Iceland and China, solving puzzles for which successful miners are rewarded with small purses of digital coins. Every 10 minutes, they give somebody 25 Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency pioneer Vinay Gupta is the CEO of Materium. So there's a job that has to be done, taking all the transactions that have been done in the last 10 minutes and making sure that they don't contradict each other and then publishing a block which contains all of those transactions to the entire world so that everybody can agree what the current bank balances are in the Bitcoin system. But the job is so profitable that there's very strong competition to get that job and the one who has the fastest computer in that 10-minute block gets the 25 Bitcoin and the job. Over time, 21 million bitcoins will be mined and no more. New York Times financial reporter Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold, Bitcoin and the Inside Story of the Misfits and Millionaires Trying to Reinvent Money, says it's part of a utopian vision to protect the value of the money from incompetent, corrupt, or simply 
desperate governments. This idea really harked back to the idea of the gold standard, which took a lot of power away from governments to issue as much currency as they wanted. Bitcoin provided this alternative of an asset that you could hold digitally without having to have it under your mattress, and that at least seemed to hold the promise that it would keep its value better than the peso or whatever local currency it was that was dwindling away. It's an ingenious way to limit the money supply, but only one approach to digital money. At the moment, there are well over 2,000 cryptocurrencies, from number two Ethereum to Golem, Zipper, and, hello Tinkerbell, Pixie Coin, each representing a different user need or economic ideology. Bitcoin constitutes about half the world's crypto value, but there are more than $80 billion worth of rival denominations, 15 of which are worth at least a billion dollars. Neha Narula. So holders of Bitcoin often feel like they're buying into this vision of a money that isn't controlled by government, that can't be inflated away, where no one can stop you from making payments and no one can take your wealth away from you. There's a cryptocurrency for pretty much any field or topic you could think of. There's DentaCoin, a cryptocurrency for dentists. There's JesusCoin. There's an art project that came from someone who was a former student at MIT, TetzelCoin, which is about sort of claiming your sins. You purchase this currency in order to absolve yourself of your sins. Basically, we're seeing all these different ways for people to buy into a future that they believe in by becoming a holder of this coin. Every one of these currencies is differentiated by its philosophy of money. Materium's Vinay Gupta, who previously coordinated the launch of Ethereum. They take the philosophy of money, they implement it as code, and then they ship it to the world. And if people like it, they buy it. And if they don't, they ignore it. So which belief system choice is correct? I don't know. Which religion is correct? Yes, the technology is mind-boggling across the board, but once again like Mesopotamian temples or Tinkerbell, it comes down to faith. There are even schisms, like the one that split the Catholic and Orthodox churches. In the world of Bitcoin, they're called forks, like when one part of the community chose to follow a new set of protocols, called Bitcoin Cash, and another stayed put. Likewise, there is Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Bitcoin evangelist Andreas Antonopoulos. Which fork to follow? Which is the chain that matters? Which one will keep its value? No one can tell you that. Because the only Bitcoin that matters is the one that you choose to validate. There is no objective truth. There is only empirical, subjective truth. With apologies to Rene Magritte, put that in your this is not a pipe and smoke it. What all the sects, all the denominations, all the expressions of faith have in common is the desire for something utopian, an efficient monetary system free of interference, middlemen, and fraud, which forces us to look at the dystopian other side of the Bitcoin. For one thing, these currencies conceived for stability happen to be extremely volatile. Bitcoin plunges on world markets, down more than 20% on Friday. Falling below $10,000. Falling below $9,000 for the first time Falling since November. Falling back below $7,000. Bitcoin has officially been in a correction for 190 days. 
Bitcoin peaked at nearly $20,000 per coin last December. It's at about $6,400 now. Ethereum has tumbled from a January high of about $1,400 to $220. There is also the question of liquidity and frictionless e-commerce. A decade into crypto history, the process of purchasing and converting digital currency remains cumbersome. Too many steps, too few exchanges, too many delays. And for a currency that's created in part to stymie powerful intermediaries, too much trust to be placed in too many faceless actors. Then there is criminality. While digital currency is attractive to libertarians and anarchists and victims of hyperinflation, so far it has been most useful for the denizens of the dark web, where drugs and other contraband are peddled. The man known as the Dread Pirate Roberts was sentenced to life in prison for running a $214 million online drug bazaar called Silk Road. Silk Road was a black market website that allowed users to buy everything from cocaine to guns, all by anonymously using bitcoins. Finally, there is that nagging question of state power. If nations lose the control of tracking and printing and, of course, taxing money, what's the glue holding them together? Anthems? Tourist attractions? Olympic teams? Vinay Gupta says the earliest crypto proponents, the so-called cypherpunks, thought government's time had passed. And that's not inherently a crazy idea. I mean, the nation state as an institution is only a few hundred years old, goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia. Before that, we had this kind of feudal kingdom stuff. And before that, we had city-states. And, you know, the systems that we use to run the world keep changing, dependent on the available technology. Once again, economics professor Mark Blythe. Number one, states are never going to give up voluntarily the best monopoly they ever discovered, which is the issuance of currency. Secondly, at the end of the day, if you have lots of different private monies to choose from and use, that depends upon the other people's willingness to accept and use them. So why does everybody accept and use the dollar? Because it's the largest economy, it's the biggest pile of cash in the world, it's the currency everyone wants to hold. Let's say that we do mark coins, right? I'm going to issue mark coins next week. How many people are going to want to hold mark coins? How am I going to do this intergenerationally? Am I going to live for 150 years? How am I going to redeem the promises? But why rule out the possibility that a vast Bitcoin community or some other coin community could endure like any other, generation to generation? Blythe had an answer for that, too. Let's think about the whole crypto thing. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, reading about this, and taking it very seriously. And I've come to the following conclusion. If you have to explain to someone it's money, it's not money. That there is a good line, but Vinay Gupta has a comeback too, which is the inherent limitation of trying to explain a new thing in the terms of the thing it replaces. Cryptocurrency is like currency, Gupta says, about in the way a car is like a horseless carriage. It has functions which are like money, but it isn't really money. It's something beyond money. It's more complex, it's more nuanced, it's more deft. It's more historical. So we're in this position where we're sort of confronted by something new and we just find an old name and we apply it. Another good example of where this happened recently was the mobile phone. Um, I'm old enough to remember when a phone was an electromechanical device that plugged into the wall and, you know, a few times a day it would make a loud ringing noise when an electrical signal came from an exchange and bang the striker on the bell. So we seamlessly went from the phone as this dumb device that was plugged into a wall to these very, very flexible and powerful pocket computers that we call mobile phones. It's not a phone. 
It's a pocket computer that happens to have an application on it that makes a phone call. Even the money isn't money. It keeps changing definition every few generations into something that has different problems from the previous problems. And we just call it the same stuff and we pretend it works the same way, even though it really doesn't. This is the nature, I suppose, of an endless perplex. So, who's supposed to make sense of all of this, to define it, to mediate it? Different people have managed to convince themselves that this thing is going to be worth something, that really is just an entry on a digital ledger somewhere. Journalist Nathaniel Popper. And yet, all of these people have come up with these different stories for why it should be worth something. When you meet people in China who are into this, you hear a different story than you hear from people in Argentina or from people in Finland or from people in the United States. You know, Bitcoin relies on storytelling around it and on the media because the media is the way these stories are propagated. The media. Because, as we said from the outset, money is a story we tell ourselves and stories are our racket. You can disintermediate the Federal Reserve, but for the time being, you cannot disintermediate the media. Once again, Neha Narula. As I've been sort of studying and learning about money and, and Bitcoin and working in this field, I'm more and more convinced that it's almost entirely about perception. It's about the story. Think about J.S.G. Boggs. He was an obscure conceptual artist until coverage of his British trial gave him notoriety worldwide. Suddenly, an original Boggs was a global asset. The old adage is, follow the money. The corollary is, follow the story. Which is exactly what renowned photographer and conceptual artist Kevin Abosh did. In 2015, a collector bought one of his portraits for a very large sum of money, inadvertently capturing the world's attention. Abash revealed this month that he sold a simple portrait of an organic Irish potato to a European businessman last year. The man reportedly paid 1 million euros for potato number 345, the equivalent of 1,080,000 American dollars. A potato. The global incredulity was for him both fun and vaguely unsettling. Kevin A. Bosch. You would hope that people concentrate on the artistic merit of the work that you produce. But if the world was going to value him like a commodity, he wasn't going to be a mere spectator. I thought, well, if I'm going to be treated like a coin, I want to be the one who mints the coins. Using the very blockchain technology that undergirds cryptocurrency, Abosh e-minted 10 million tokens. He called them IAMA coins, each divisible to 18 decimal places. You can buy a token, or one infinitesimal fraction of it, and be in the possession of an original Abosh. But more or less in the same way gold undergirded world currencies and computer-mined algorithms underlie Bitcoin, Abosh connected IAMACoin to a physical asset, 100 prints of his blockchain address stamped on paper in his own blood. So now I had this connection between the physical artwork, the blood prints, if you will, and the virtual artwork. My virtual artwork and a crypto token like Ether are identical, but it's like that Magritte, ceci n'est pas un pipe. It's like you're looking at a pipe, but it's saying it's not a pipe. <laughs> uh, it's uh, funny you should mention that. I've, uh, uh, I've discussed that earlier in this episode with respect to 
maybe the progenitor of your art project, and that's Boggs, who was exploring some of the same issues. Are, are you, uh, to, to phrase a coin, a crypto Boggs? <laughs> I'd actually forgotten about him. I'm surprised it hasn't actually come up in the last few months, but for sure, he addressed a lot of the same issues around value. As previously noted, philosophers and economists, not to mention educational filmmakers, have been puzzling over these questions for millennia. So what can a couple of artists add to the discussion? The crypto zeitgeist and the, the cryptocurrency phenomenon across the globe has people questioning value in a way that I think they haven't before. And I think it shouldn't be surprising that an artist could illuminate this in a way that greases the path for a, a discussion that pretty much anybody can get involved in. You asked about what is money, and I actually do have an answer. Money for me is energy. It's potential energy. And then I'd question perhaps, is that energy just an extension of us? So are we actually separate from that which we call money? Not you are what you eat, but you are what you fetch? I'm looking at matters of identity, existence, value, human currency. It starts with identity. Where do I end? Where do you or the object in front of me begin or vice versa? Are we one or are we separate? Existence. Am I? Are you? What are we? Value. How do we ascribe value to anything and everything, especially human life, or the moments, the seemingly fleeting, banal moments that together become the human experience? And so, there you have it. What is money? It's what you pay the electric bill with. Oh, and it's also the story of humankind. for this week's show on the media is produced by Lana Casanova Burgess, Michael Lowinger, and John Hanrahan. The heavy lifting for this special show was by Leia Fetter. We had more help from Asta Chattaverdi and Samantha Maldonado, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield. You're so money and you don't even know it. That's what I keep trying to tell you. So Could you, you not mess with me right now? On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.